All right, we got Bildad's first speech, chapter 8, and now Job is going to respond to him. And one of the things I really like about Job is it seems very realistic. I don't mean the trauma that Job goes through. That is hopefully not realistic, uh, though it is real. Hopefully that sort of you lose absolutely everything in one day um, is not something we experience. But Job's response to it strikes true to me. Uh, the, the sort of stages of grief that we've talked about, the looking to these friends for comfort, hearing the first speech from Eliphaz with its sort of insults and, and silly praise and bad theology and basically brushing it aside and turning to God and directing a response to God. But then by the time you hear the second speech from a friend, here where Bildad speaks, and he has no kindness, no compassion, it's entirely uh, theology-driven with no, no honor for the person at the other end of this suffering, no desire to comfort. And Job's response here gets a little darker. And... I can relate to that. Right? You, you sort of build up the, the sanctified patience to respond to someone's first major letdown in comforting you or correcting you. But then when that's followed up, you, you just wear down and you respond with a little more rawness, which is what's going to happen here with with Job. I think about times as silly as it is where I've been in the car having a bad day. I had one recently and uh, you know, you have truly bad or troubling things happen and you you do your best to handle those with with grace. But then I'm driving the car and some really just stupid thing happens. It's not a big deal. Somebody cuts you off which causes you to get stuck at the red light which now and I scream this just sort of primal by myself in the car scream. And that's what Job 9 and 10 is. This is Job's primal scream. I can't remember if it's uh, Derek Thomas or Christopher Ash. It's one of the books that we're using who tells the story about some hospitals in the UK that have a screaming room. <laughs> and the idea is sometimes you just need a place in the depths of grief or pain that you can just go in and scream and just let it out. And that's what Job is doing here. He's just longing to, to scream and to let it out. And so he will slide more into what will look like despair. He will truly be convinced that death is not far from him, that, that he will die soon. And so he gets to this point where because it's inevitable he just wishes God would, would do it just, just let it happen it's better than this um, this is what pain does that sort of feeling of just one more thing from God just one more painful thing and at some point you hit this this limit with this sort of primal scream and and 
not God's actions, but actually Job's friends' non-attempts at comforting are what push him to this sort of breaking point. Now, there's a really important caveat as we start to get into some of Job's darker speeches. There's a really important distinction that we need to understand, and I'm going to read this paragraph from Chris Ash because the, I think he does a good job of, of highlighting what this is. So he says, when we listen to Job's speeches, we need to bear in mind the distinction between Job's perception and Job's heart. You're going to hear statements from each, from his heart and from his perception. And you're going to need to be able to put them in the right bucket. And it's good practice because if we can do that with Job as sort of an intellectual exercise, maybe we can do that better with one another. So that when we're comforting someone in their grief and they say something that is not theologically accurate, we might recognize that they're not speaking from their heart, the heart of faith. They're thinking from perception, how things appear. God hates me. God doesn't hate you. They know God doesn't hate them. They, they know. They believe the Apostles' Creed. They understand. But what they perceive based on what's happening in their lives is God does not love me at all. And somewhere along the line in the comforting, the phrase, God does love you, might be helpful. Probably will be helpful. Probably not the first thing that comes out of your mouth to someone who's grieving is, you're wrong. God doesn't love me. No, you're wrong. You don't know anything about God. Go back. Do some more reading. Good job, Job's friend. Good job. I'm sure they feel really comforted. So he says, bear in mind the distinction between Job's perception and Job's heart. His heart is the heart of a believer. Which is why, even at the end of Job, God will affirm Job. That Job is a righteous man. It's all through the book from God's perspective. God does not say, well, Job was a righteous man, except for those few times where we had a couple months there where Job totally abandoned the faith and walked away and was no good. No, Job was a righteous man. He's a good man. That's God affirming Job's heart, what Job believes in faith, what he knows to be true at, at, at the level that God gives to us uh, of understanding. But his perception is flawed because it's his perception, I'm going to say, in suffering. Just so we're very clear on the distinction. And so what you hear in these speeches are the honest grapplings, this is Ash again, of a real believer with a heart for God as he sees what he thought was a secure worldview crumble around him. And this is why you'll hear Job say some things that are plain wrong. And yet he says them from a heart that is deeply right. And for those of us who are logic-minded, that distinction is very troubling. <laughs> we just want people to say what they believe, and, and what they say we can equate and understand as what they believe so that when it's wrong, we can correct it and we can move on. Because everybody would feel okay if they just thought and believed all the right things. Really, that's how our deranged brains work. I see Jake smiling because his brain works this way too, right? If we could just get you people to think and believe the right things, you would never be sad about anything. <laughs> that's madness. 
And, and this is kind of why it's madness, because you can have the heart of a believer, the heart of faith, and yet your perception in suffering will tell you all sorts of things that isn't true, and you will say many of those things because you feel them. They feel deeply real to you. And we'll get to the sort of talking off the ledge in a minute, but at least acknowledging that someone saying God hates me is not a, that's not a theological creed when they're in the depths of suffering. They're not writing a new catechism of, here's what's actually true about God. Everything else I thought was a lie. What's actually true is that God hates me and has a horrible plan for my life. That's how they feel. It's what they're perceiving based on what's happening. And so we need to be patient with that. And as Job says the things, that's why anybody who goes through the book of Job with a fine-tooth comb and pulls out all the unorthodox things that Job says and uses them as proof to show that Job is not a believer, that person doesn't understand Job. God told us, first verses, first chapter, Job is the real deal. Now process all the rest of it. And I think that's really helpful for us. Because if God didn't do this in Job through his word, I think a lot of us would really struggle to allow this sort of behavior. You're not allowed to talk to God that way. You kids, except God said that Job, this righteous man, did just that. So remember, what... what Job is dealing with where this perception is coming from is the discontinuity, the, 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 the disconnect between the character of God, which Job theologically knows well, and the works of God, what God does, particularly in Job's life. And Job tries to hold those two things side by side and say, I can't reconcile them. I can't reconcile what I know to be true about God with what I'm seeing and experiencing happening in my own life. And we, we got the picture of why this is way back in chapter one, but we've got to remember it all the way through the book. And it's that God is sovereign and in his sovereignty, see if God had a simple, pure sovereignty like Islam, then every single thing God does would directly and immediately reveal his character. But remember the discussion, we said that's not how Yahweh has chosen to govern the universe. Yahweh has chosen to govern the universe through means, through the use of forces and intermediaries. And in chapter one, we got exposure to some of those in the heavenly council. And one of those, particularly Satan, is evil. God chooses to govern the universe through means, some of which are evil. The example Ash uses in the book, which is a, a helpful one, is you remember in the Old Testament when David gets in trouble for taking that census? He doesn't trust God to protect Israel. He'd rather trust numbers. So he wants to take a census so he knows how big they are, so he can feel confident, and probably so he could publish that number. That number would get out to the surrounding nations, and they would say, whoa, Israel's way bigger than they, we thought they were. We shouldn't mess with Israel. And the Bible does not commend that census taking. He is rebuked for this. And the story of that census taking, you may not remember, is in two different books of the Bible. The exact same story, as often happens for that period of Israel's history, is in two different books. That story is in Samuel, and it's in Chronicles. And they say two slightly different things that 
speak to what, what we're talking about here in Job and the means that God uses. This was David's sin. David is personally responsible for this sin. Everybody agrees with that. Both stories, absolutely David's sin. The question is, who provoked to this sin? How did this sin come about to be in the orchestration of the universe? And in Samuel, the focus is on God's sovereignty and that God, mad at Israel for their idolatry and disobedience and pride, provoked David to do this. David wanted to do this, did it freely. He's responsible for doing this. But God sovereignly made this come to pass as a punishment of Israel. In Chronicles, you get a little extra detail, which is God did not provoke David directly to do this. That's not what God does. What does Chronicles tell us about the same story? He sent a lying spirit. Exactly what happens here in Job. God, for redemptive purposes, rebuking his people in his wrath, calling his people to repentance and back to faithfulness. God, for redemptive purposes, looks at an evil spirit and says, you are allowed to go do what you want to do, provoking my servant to sin. The evil spirit is doing what it wants to do, which is evil. David is doing what he wants to do, which is sin. But God has a redemptive purpose behind all of it. And that's what's happening here in Job. And so Ash concludes, some of God's actions express his character, while others are the outworking of his longer plan to deal with evil. And I would say, and to redeem, to call people to repentance. It shows the character of God long-term. God is just and holy. He's going to punish evil. God is going to redeem those, who, his people, who turn to him in repentance. But it does not show the character of God short-term. God doesn't provoke to sin. God is not a liar. God does not personally bring disease. All of those things don't reflect God's character, even though God is still sovereign over all of those actions. So is your head spinning yet? Yeah, it should be. This is what happens later in Job when Job says, I demand to understand how everything I just described actually works and functions. And God's like, you've lost your mind. You think you're going to understand that? First of all, you think you're entitled to understand that. And secondly, back to something we said earlier in Job, you think you could? You think if God gave you this master three-dimensional design blueprint of the way he governs and ordains the universe so that his holiness is maintained, yet there's evil in this world, yet he is completely sovereign, yet he is without guilt as it comes to sin, you think you could wrap your mind around that model? You could not. So we're to know that it is so. And that not everything that happens even though all things are according to the will of a sovereign God, not everything that happens is a direct reflection on his character in the short term. It's his overarching purpose to redeem and to punish evil that reflects his character. 
the means through which he accomplishes that, they can look like Satan. And they belong to Satan. Pew. Right? I mean, it is. It's, it is too deep for us. I can go as far as scripture goes. Everything I just said is what scripture tells us. What the fallen human mind that desires to decide for itself what is good and evil. Go back to Genesis 3. That mind in the garden, which we still have now and worse via the fall. That mind wants one more step of explanation. That longing that we feel. Okay, God, I hear all of that. Now you've got to give me one more detail, which is the how that works. That's sinful rebellion in us. That's the point at which God says to multiple people in the Bible, you go too far. It's the point at which Solomon goes mad. It's the point at which Job is driven into despair and eventually will get rebuked. <laughs> not for not for most of this pain-filled stuff he's saying. It's the demanding of the next step of the answer that's going to cause God to speak out of the whirlwind. I'm a, I'm, my natural question is, does that make sense? I'm even afraid to ask <laughs> at this point. That's a really tough one. John? The, the longing to know more, we should view that as a result of the fall, not as being made in God's image. It, on this issue, not in general. So in general, the desire to know more about God as he's revealed himself, that, that caveat is that as he's revealed himself. We should always want to know more and grow deeper in everything God has revealed to us. He's cordoned off this area multiple times, clearly in scripture. This is not yours. He does it in little ways to Jonah. He does it in big ways to Job. He does it in some ways to Solomon and to David. He, this is not yours. Paul makes this argument to the church in his letter to the Romans. Is God tells us this much, look how much I can tell you. He makes vessels for wrath and he makes vessels for glory. And he go down that whole path. Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. But if your next question is why, what does Paul say? You're a piece of pottery made by a potter. And you're going to look back at the potter and say, I wanted that life instead. Who do you think you are? Like you go a step too far. So that, that desire to know more, which comes out of the perspective that God owes us more of an answer, that is born out of the fall. And it's where most modern heresies come from, ancient heresies too, but most modern heresies that are on the popular Christian bookstore shelf or that are all the top selling Christian books on Amazon are people who explain more than scripture does they've gotten some extra word from god and they're going to say more than scripture does to give you some sort of comfort that scripture doesn't offer or some sort of answer that scripture doesn't provide and that's why the church is filled with heresies is because we don't just stop with scripture he's revealed so much more than we comprehend already it's just not the parts we want i want to know why this and if somebody's going to give you an answer for why this, it's going to be outside of Scripture. Here's it. Don't you think, though, it's because we have a finite brain and God's infinite? Yes. So that we can't. Like, 
Literally can't. It's not that he won't. He's not withholding. And that's the point I'm trying to make with the, with the three-dimensional model thing. He could give you every piece of information. And you would look at it and say, when are you going to answer my question, God? Yeah, Justin? Is, that, I mean, is it the right mindset to say, like, I can't understand this, so I just trust you? Or is that a- it's where you've got to get. So there's a, there's a cop-out way of saying that, which is not what you're doing. The cop-out way of saying it is, I'm not even going to dig into what God has revealed. I'm not even going to study God's word or try to think about my life and the things that happen biblically because in the end, God is God and I'm not going to understand it anyway. God spent 66 books revealing himself, people. He's told us a great deal about how to interpret reality. In fact, this is a totally subjective statement, he's given far more than he's withheld in terms of knowledge. He's given so much. When we get to this point, where we reach the end of what God has revealed, and we say, but I demand one more, that's when we have to humbly say, I couldn't go further even if he did. Megan? I feel like the, the flip side of that is, isn't it still withholding because he designed our brains? So we can't be like, oh, it's with our brains. He designed how that was going to work. So in philosophy of religion, <laughs> we would say, you're correct, but... Uh, you may have run up against a philosophical impossibility in the gulf between the infinite and the finite. Can you build a rock too heavy for an omnipotent being to move? Well, no, because the definition of omnipotent is you're all-powerful. You can move anything. So it's not possible to build a rock too big for an omnipotent being to move. It's not possible for God to make a finite brain comprehend the infinite. That's not a limitation of God. It's a limitation of uh, the God way we God. use words. Of like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. But yeah, if God wanted us to know this thing, it's theoretically true that He could make us know this thing. Maybe, <laughs> <laughs> but we definitely know with certainty that we're not able to know this thing. And I know we don't know this, but God. I'm assuming because we're created in the image of God and we want to be known, that God also wants to be known. Yeah. And so I'm assuming that when we get to heaven, he's going to want us to know some of this. But we don't really know that. And that's the limit of the... We will know more about God then than we know now. If for no other reason than the noetic effect of sin, the fallen brain part, will be repaired... 100% 100% certain that's true. I'm 80% certain what you just said is true. That God did not choose to reveal to us every single thing he could have revealed to us at this stage of redemptive history. He did that all throughout creation. So there's a little bit of intellectual arrogance to say that post-scripture, God is completely done revealing himself and never has anything else he wants to teach any of his creatures about, Right. And then I'm even, uh, what percentage sure, is there even a layer beyond that if these were the things you couldn't know before? To Fagan's point, I made you this way with with limitations. And now, because remember, glorification is not the garden. It's the garden plus. The garden was a probationary period. The garden is not what we're trying to get back to. Sorry, bunch of modern Christian books that say it's just not true. There's a new heavens and a new earth. 
The garden didn't have, use language like streets paved with gold. The garden wasn't referred to as a heavenly city. Like there, there's, it's fundamentally different in the new heavens and the new earth than in the garden. Is one of those differences that in glorified bodies, our minds are capable of knowing more than even they knew pre-fall. I think so. But now we're in this wild stuff. I don't know. All right. Go ahead. You broke my mind. Yeah, well, good. <laughs> it doesn't make him any less God because in the short term, his character is not revealed, right? Correct. In fact, it, 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 it should protect our thinking about God a little bit because if we're trying to look at evil things that happen and we operate under the assumption that every single thing that happens either reveals God's character or reveals that he's not sovereign. Well, those are unbiblical, right? So we, get, we, like, we just really have a tough time. And thankfully, God shows us, no, 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 I use means. And my character is the whole picture. They're freely, and it's, it's part of how we understand ourselves, too. God ordained big picture whatsoever comes to pass, which includes my sin. So how does God get off the hook for my sin? Right? Because God's character is the ark. My free choices are these things that move the ark along. And it's all drawn out before the first day of eternity. It's not like God's reacting. Oh, man, Paul did this. Now I've got to change the plan again. Like God has no need of that. His plan was perfect. But when we look at a single moment in the plan, it's why people say things like, my God would never do that. And they're not all wrong. <laughs> they're wrong, but they're not all wrong. We need to get the nugget out of what they're saying, which is this action does not reflect the character of God. Uh, Renee, can you read 9, 1 through 3? Then Job answered and said, Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. How can a mortal be righteous before God? Now, this is where we have to put on our, our Bible word thinking cap because it's really important that we remember that righteous and justified are the same thing. So what Job is asking in New Testament terms is how can a human be justified before God because Job thinks he has a pretty good case. What's happening to me is not what I deserve. This is not right. I want a hearing before God. And in that hearing, it will be proved that I am righteous. That's what justified is. You get a hearing before God. You are declared. Yep. Checks out. You are righteous. We know we're justified because of Jesus. We will get there. But the concept of justification is being declared righteous. Yep. I looked at the facts. The answer is you are in the right. That's what righteous is. And that's what Job wants. He says, I'm in the right. And I want a hearing before God where I am declared righteous. Except he sees a few problems with this plan. And the first of these is, how can a mortal be declared righteous before God? How does that even work? He knows Bildad is wrong, that, that their blessings are just rewards for good behavior and, and suffering is just punishment for bad behavior. He knows that he's not done anything to merit this calamity that's come into his life. 
And again, we all sort of fall back into, yeah, but everybody's sinful. That's not what Job's about. And God's trying to tell you, Job has not done anything to merit this calamity. Why did Job get this calamity? Because Satan threatened God's honor. What part of that involved Job's behavior? The part where Job was righteous and was a good vessel through which this theory could be tested out. So Job knows, not that he's sinless, but that nothing he's done makes Bildad and Eliphaz's worldviews make any sense. Those can't be right. And Job wants to come in front of God and say, look, I've not lost my sense of justice the way my crazy friends have. My crazy friends see the stuff you've done to me, and if they agreed with me that I was innocent, if they saw what's true, that I'm innocent, they would claim that you're unjust. And Job knows God is not unjust, but Job also knows he's innocent. And so he's got this mess on his hands, and he wants a hearing. He wants God to declare, you do not deserve this. And it's such a good sign about Job's heart. Because Job doesn't care about vindication. I mean, I shouldn't say he doesn't care, but I'm speaking hyperbole. He doesn't care most about vindication in front of others. He wants to be vindicated before God because he wants restored fellowship with God that he feels he is utterly lacking. God has worse than abandoned him. God has turned on him. And Job wants to be justified so that he can be restored to God again. And there's a whole lot of hurt mixed in with this where Job says things like, you know, like, why won't just God leave me alone? That's compared with God torturing me. His first choice is that he'd be justified before God and restored before God. So as Job imagines this scenario that he really wants, this judicial hearing where he's justified before God, he sees several problems, though. The first one was in what Renee read. God is big, and Job is insignificant. <laughs> and so why would the creator of the universe take any one person's complaint seriously? I always uh, think about this when I'm on the phone with a customer service rep and they made the mistake on their end, their giant conglomerate company did, and I'm trying to tell them that they need to make this right. And always in the back of my mind is, you know they hear this story 600 times a day. 600 times a day. Like, this company is not going to change anything because Paul had a bad experience. Who am I, one customer, when this company is so big? And that's what Job says here. God is so big. He made it all. He made all the people. Why would God listen to the grievance of one person saying, I don't like what you're doing with my life. This isn't fair. Um, now, I will say, Job ends up wrong about this because God does give Job a hearing later in the book. It's just not the hearing that Job was looking for. Um, God, Job wants the why. I demand that you tell me why. God gives him a hearing where he tells Job that the correct answer is submission. Submission to the will of God. Humility before the works of God is the right answer to persevering through this suffering. And pursuing this I must know why track for my mind to ever be right just means your mind will never be right. That's the hearing that Job will actually get. Um, and so that doesn't take Job completely by surprise. When God comes out of the whirlwind, 
the reason why Job is able to submit to what God says so quickly is Job already knew what God said. He'd set it aside for a moment. He'd forgotten it for a while. But he's not surprised because he says it right here. He's God and I'm me. What, what grievance could I bring that he should take seriously? So bring your burdens, bring your anxieties, bring your fears, bring your, does God say, bring your selfish conviction that I am unjust and you would be a better God than me. But he knows that we're going to have times of that kind of doubtfulness in the midst of grief. I mean, when he, I mean, truly Job has lost his mind, who wouldn't have? Right, but God does not say, bring your sinful disobedience against my throne to me and I will validate it. He says, bring it to me in repentance, (laughs) right? So yes, we can bring our other thing. We can bring it all to God. The question is, in what posture do we bring it to God? And what Job will learn in the end is you bring it in a posture of humility and repentance and trust, to Justin's point, not, I got grievances and I demand an explanation. You need to map this thing out and until you can make it make sense to me, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. That's, that's the argument here. Um, Job never loses his faith. No, no, no. He's just angry. I mean, who wouldn't be, right? I mean. Yeah. We'll talk about that. I agree. <laughs> uh, Karen, can you read 4 through 13? He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? He who removes mountains and they know it not when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion and Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? God will not turn back his anger beneath him, bowed the helpers of Rahab. So those famously quoted verses at the end of Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? That's not the first time that kind of language is used in Job, is it? No, Job uses it right here. Job recognizes the incomprehensibility and the power of God. He sees it as a problem for him in getting this hearing. I want a hearing. God's big, I'm small, and God's incomprehensible. Again, back to the even if God gave us the answers, we could not grasp them. Job says so right here. He knows that. He gets it. The first uh, verses 5 through 10 are about the moral order of the universe that is based on the characters, the characteristics of God. God's sovereignty, God's justice is what provides the moral order of the universe. It uses the word mountains. It uses the word pillars. That's language the Bible uses talking about the foundation of the universe being solid. Psalm 82 talks about how when unjust judges are judging, the foundations of the earth are shaken. The moral order of the universe is shaken when earthly judges promote injustice. Hannah, when she praises God in 1 Samuel 2, praises God's justice as the foundation, the certainty, the security of the moral order of the universe. 
And, and Job says, all that is true, and God is incomprehensible within it. Because what it looks like is that God, who I know biblically to be the foundation of moral order, pillars, right? Job knows God is the foundation of moral order. That's the heart of a believer. The heart of a believer knows that God is the foundation of moral order. But what does Job's perception in suffering think and see? That God is an agent of chaos. That God has brought this unfair, disastrous chaos. And that how to reconcile those things is what Job is saying makes God utterly incomprehensible. Job says, why would God give me a hearing? Because he's huge and I'm small. And then if God gave me a hearing and he were to explain to me how those things can be reconciled, he'd be like Nathan. He'd say, you just broke my brain. So Job really wants this trial. But everything says this trial can't happen. You can't be justified before God. He has more problems for his planned day in court. Verse 11 talked about how God was invisible. So there's even this sort of, he could escape me. Like, if he just didn't like my demand for justice, he could just go away. And I wouldn't even know it because he's invisible. I can't see God. Um, verse 12, God is not accountable to anyone. So the purpose of a trial is to hold someone accountable to the law to their own behavior. You, you, you hold two things side by side and say either one does match the other or one does not. Well, who holds God accountable? I quoted earlier Romans 9, 20 and 21 about the pottery complaining for the purpose for which it was made. And Paul says very plainly the same thing Job says here. No one, no one can hold God accountable. Otherwise, he wouldn't be God. You can't be the ultimate and say, I get to remain the ultimate as long as that guy says it's okay. <laughs> as long as this lady says I'm doing a good job. Then I'm allowed to stay in charge. That's not God. That's you know, the resident attendant or something. Verse 13, God cannot be restrained. So this needs a little bit of explanation because we probably don't know what Rahab is. We probably think of the person Rahab, and that is not what this is about. Rahab is a sea creature like the Leviathan. And the legend, the pagan legend, had it that Rahab had fought a great massive battle with God at creation and that God won that battle. And so Job's point is this great, gigantic, majestic, powerful sea monster fought God and lost. And I'm supposed to do what? Not going to happen. God cannot be restrained. Derek Thomas says nothing, real or imaginary, poses any kind of threat to God's powers. So this is why Job descends for a moment. He'll be in and out of it for a while. Descends into despair. Because his plan isn't going to work. Which means he's trapped. He knows he's innocent. And that means either God isn't sovereign or isn't just. His idiot friends won't listen to him. They argue that he's guilty. And the idea of getting a hearing with God to vindicate all of this can't happen. There's too many barriers. And so Job 
spirals. Justin, can you read 14 through 26? How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. I summoned him, and he answered me. I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. It is a contest of strength. Behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one. Therefore, I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked, covers the face of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? My days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They go by like skips of reed, like an eagle swooping on the prey. Yeah, right? I mean, this is what Pam was saying. Who wouldn't feel this way? And who wouldn't speak this way to God if they're going to speak to God at all in this moment? Jake, will you go to Psalm 77 for a minute? Um, This is the perception of suffering speaking. This is not the section of Job from which we should draw Job's statement of faith. This is the section of Job from which you should hear the heart of the sufferer and have compassion on a person who says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, Jake, will you read 77, 1 through 9? It's before the po- stop before the positive turn. You'll see. <laughs> I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without weary. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Job wasn't the first person to feel that way. He won't be the last. This is the perception of suffering. This is the way we talk when we're, when we're in it. When we're in the mess of the pain of this world. He, he knows he's not guilty. He can't get a hearing with God. Can't see how that's possible. His friends provide him no comfort whatsoever. What is he supposed to think? His theology, the heart of a believer, isn't broken. He just said a million orthodox things about who God is. And now what? And the and now what can be pretty painful. And I think, again, this is to what Pam was saying a minute ago, 
God can handle this. It's okay for us to say this to him. Now, God is not going to, to use sort of the modern parlance, just accept us as we are. and just, No, God's going to change us. <laughs> That's why we should be bringing this to God. It's why of all the lament psalms, I, t- I made Jake stop before the turn. <laughs> the turn is in every single lament psalm, save one. And the turn is, yet I know. The turn is when the heart of the believer starts speaking again. The whole psalm is a lament because the believer in suffering is saying, I can't reconcile these two things. I can't reconcile what I know and what I see and feel. And the result of that lack of reconciliation is pain. One lament psalm doesn't make the turn. 69? 88? 88. 88. So my argument is always, that's the ratio it should be in our lives too. Are you ever allowed to have the moment where you say, this is awful, God hates me, you don't hear me, I pile up my bed with tears, full stop? Yes! psalmist has that moment you're allowed to have that moment and for every one of those you have you should have like 65 where you say that and you have some form of yet i know because the yet i know is where god is working not leaving us how we are in our confusion and pain but changing us into what he wants us to be faithful followers of him which is the only thing that will ever take this pain away and it takes time. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, not like when you see it in like the Psalms, you know, it, it appears that, okay, you know, one through nine, I'm just, you know. It's bad. It's all bad. But then I suddenly like, you know, it's a yeah. process. And it's, it's, on it's one of the harder things to do in being a good comforter, which is one of the things we're trying to work on in this yeah. class. How do we comfort others? One of the hardest steps is resisting the temptation to rush someone to the turn and making sure that the turn does take place at some point. Getting the timing right and the tone right on facilitating that turn is critical. it's, It's how we comfort in truth. It's how we actually comfort by meeting people where they are and we actually comfort by helping to guide them to somewhere else, a better place than their hurt and their pain. Uh, so I'm going to stop there for today. It, it is kind of a, uh, for some of you who are in counseling circles, you're familiar with cognitive behavioral therapy, which is just this talking through the way that we sort of uh, self therapy is we we talk through a situation. What are the facts I know? What am I feeling and experiencing? What's the there for? And the Psalms are a kind of cognitive behavioral therapy. And part of that is you're allowed to just let loose on the perception in the suffering. This is really, really bad. What I do hope that we do talk to the sufferer for a minute because I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth. To the comforter, uh, meet with people in their pain 
and do not minimize their pain. Make sure you understand the source of their pain before you so blithely tell them how to get out of it. I hope I've said that enough to give me permission to what I'll say next, which is to the sufferer. Have the self-awareness whenever possible. There are moments when it is not possible. But whenever possible, have the self-awareness to contextualize your suffering in light of the suffering of others around you. Nobody wants to hear me stand up here and give a Psalm 88-style lament about the flat tire I had this week. Right? We have tragic deaths in families. We have lost loved ones. We have, we have real problems. So I'm allowed to be bummed about my flat tire. <laughs> I'm using a silly example on purpose. Now, that doesn't mean you have to beat yourself up, that we have to compare pains, and if my pain isn't good enough, I, I'm not saying that. But I am saying, whenever possible, one of the things that can help us process the crummy day with the flat tire is to remember the lingering and the deeper pains that are present in a lot of people's lives. And one of the things that will help you deal with your own pain is being a great comforter to someone else in theirs. All of the things that you can say to them patiently and compassionately will preach to your heart too. And that's good stuff. Questions, Jake? Yeah, one quick one. The, the one thing about Joe and his internal experience that seems so alien to me, and I don't know if it's because <laughs> it's of... It's because you're a robot. <laughs> <laughs> because of the, maybe it's because of the teaching that I've immersed <laughs> in for a long time is that that commitment to his own righteousness, holding on to that. Like, I was just listening to a, a seminary. Yeah, where's the self-doubt? Yeah. yeah. He said, you know, I'm, I'm, I teach a reform seminary. I've been drilled in this. Even I, the first thing that happened, something bad went wrong in my life was, oh, I didn't, I knew I should have been spending more time. Right. Like, right. Did that normally, not the, and it, maybe it's because we hear all the time about total depravity and those types of things. That we like, I'm righteous, God, you know, like, yeah. And certainly, if the it, Job doesn't deny, Job doesn't claim sinless perfection. Right. And and if the argument were, does Job stand completely justified before God, eternally, ontologically, Job would make a different argument. He's a better theologian. But we're told from the first page of this book that's not what this book is about. And God Himself says Job is a righteous man, beginning and end of the book. And so we are, we are required to interpret Job's experience through that lens. And yeah, I mean, that part is a little strange for us that if it got that bad, most of us would have some self-awareness to say, okay, I must have done something. <laughs> Surely I did something. And for most of us, that might be true. <laughs> but we are specifically told in Job's case has nothing to do with that. And God doesn't even just blithely say that at the beginning. This isn't about Joseph. God actually shows you what this is really about. So you have something to hang your hat on of, no, 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 this is really about God being threatened, not about Job having sinned. But Job didn't have that information. Nope. He still thought, I am. He knew he was blameless yeah. on this. Yeah. Which is Impressive, questionable. <laughs> insert your insert your own adjective here. 